Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Welcome back to the show, and we are going to get going. Today, we are joined by Phil Perlman. We're going to talk about health, wealth, and retirement. Now, Phil, if you wouldn't mind telling the listeners a little bit about yourself, that would be great. Emlyn, first off, let me just say I'm just so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm honored and it's a pleasure. I've been around for a long time. I've had multiple careers. My wife says you're ADHD, so it suited you to move around. So I started with, earned my doctorate in clinical psychology way back in the day, went to a hedge fund that was behavioral focused. And I did that for about four or five years, maybe five, six, seven years. I got really lucky there timing wise. I started near the bottom in 02. Did that for a while and got lucky again, right around the global financial crisis, left that to get involved with a company called StockTwits and get invest in StockTwits and invest in a company called Social Leverage, which was a new angel firm started by a buddy of mine, Howard Lindzen. Did that for five, six years and then went over to Yahoo Finance and built a social network there on top of Tumblr, which they had recently purchased. Then I became a banker and went and ran marketing at a bank called Bank OZK. And then I recently came back to StockTwits. And I also do some consulting and investing in private companies and public companies. But I'm back there now, and we are really building out an incredible, we're doing record traffic there, building out an incredible finance-focused social network. That's my vocational. My interests are health and wealth, really just spreading the word, you know, just spreading love, helping other people. I feel so blessed in my life having the capacity to love my family and love myself and then spread it around and try to help my community and help other people out. That's really where my headspace is at this moment. Just hearing you speak, we've spoken a few times and then seeing the stuff that you post on social media, on Twitter mostly is where I see you at. But you had energy, man. There's just an energy about you. It's a contagious energy when you're going. I'm like, man, I need to get going. So I want to jump right into this. And I know you have a few things that you're doing but I wanted to talk about why health is so important when you're talking about retirement plan. Because I know you preach that, you teach it. So talk to us about that. I'm a strong believer in long-term time perspective. Fancy word is long-term hedonism. We all know what short-term hedonism is, right? There's also this concept of long-term hedonism. And I believe that the scope of retirement planning has been overly narrow for a long time, right? because it's where business is at. And we are a capitalist society. So it makes a whole lot of sense that when we talk about retirement planning, that the implication that we have is, okay, we're talking about building monetary wealth. But if you think about it for a second and you say to yourself, well, you know what? If I am planning for my retirement, I'm planning for the time I've turned 65 or 70 or earlier or later, whenever I decide to retire, and the quality of life that I'm going to have at that time, then an incredible parallel is not just monetary wealth, but it is also physical and spiritual wealth. How you feel, 
your relationships, how you feel physically, where your mind and body, where your emotional system is at. Those things are also equally, if not more important. I mean, let's face it, you could work your face off for 45 years. You could retire with 20 in the bank. And if you are not healthy, it doesn't matter how much you got. It doesn't matter if you are the richest person in the world, the richest man in Babylon. If you don't have your body left, you don't have your mind and your heart left, and you don't have relationships, then really what's all that money worth? And so that's where I'm coming from. So I strongly believe that the scope of retirement planning really needs to be broadened to include not just monetary long-term planning, long-term hedonism, but also physical. And there's things that we know. We always think of technology as hardware and software, right? But there's knowledge technology also. There's ways that we learn from new research that have nothing to do with a phone or nothing to do with a laptop or nothing to do with the cloud. They are just knowledge-based, right? And those are based on whether it's psychological research, whether it's medical research or whatever. And so there are things that we know now that we did not know 50 years ago and 100 years ago about how to prolong our health and extend that for longer periods of time. And so I think tapping into that, employing that personally on ourselves and spreading the word in a way that is not preachy, but empathic is just, that's critical. And that's where I'm coming from. Why do you think that it has been so narrowed and not talked about. I mean, it's not something that when I'm talking to my clients, we'll touch on it, talking about longevity. And we ask about those kind of questions in just the retirement planning piece of what I'm doing for my clients. But health is never spoken about. Why do you think the industry advisors or whoever wants to get the blame or collectively, I think all of us need that. Why do you think we don't talk about it as much? I think that we live in a society that is focused so much on economics. It's not all a bad thing. I mean, you got to have money to live and to plan for the future. And all of those things are real. And we focus on it in our job. We all work to pay the bills, to have nice things for ourselves and our families. And so I think that there's a huge focus on that anyway in life. In addition to that, I think the flip side of that coin is that if you can earn a living focusing on it, then that will also be focused. Wealth managers and retirement planners are doing the good ones, the fiduciaries are doing God's work because they're helping people. A great accountant is doing God's work. I talked to my accountant the other day. I've been working with him for five or six years. He's fantastic relative to the one that I worked with before then. He makes a difference in my life. It's great. So we have such a focus on earning. We have a focus on making money. And so making money on people's health is much more difficult. As a matter of fact, there are capitalist enterprises that are very focused on not necessarily people's health, but on marketing. If you take big pharma, right? You take the pharma conglomerates. And I'm not going to mention any names here, but if you take big processed food, what do they have an interest in? They have an interest in having you eat their very profitable products. So they create them in a way that makes them addictive. And pharma is the same way. Even the health industry doesn't necessarily have your best interest in mind. And so it becomes a very personal journey 
that some people choose to take and many don't. And so I think that there's plenty of reasons to go around. A lot of it involves big business. A lot of it involves big food. A lot of it involves big pharma, unfortunately. But I think there's a personal responsibility component to it as well, that every person is responsible for themselves. When you're putting together the retirement plan, as someone's going through it, because the numbers part, I'll say that that part's easy. Implementing some of the health things that you're talking about, maybe we're making suggestions on different things that clients eat, or how would you implement the health portion of the retirement planning in the plan? Like, how does that work? I think that that is a really very great question. And I appreciate you asking that. And I don't think there's a simple answer. You have enough of a challenge as a retirement planner helping people to behave rationally when they are hardwired to not behave rationally around money, right? We're all wired or 99% of us are wired to be loss averse to a degree that we go on tilt when we're losing and where we have a tendency to sell out when we're winning too soon, right? And so even just helping people with their money is difficult enough. There's a huge chasm between here's what you should do, which is descriptive, and doing it, which is getting somebody to actually do it, right? So you have enough of a challenge as a retirement planner, as a wealth manager, as an RIA, as a whatever, as a fiduciary, helping somebody just do the right things with their money, to follow through, to open that IRA, to do whatever it is, is the right thing that they need to be doing at that moment to consolidate their accounts, to make sure that they're going in to their 401k and automating that, all of the things. That's hard enough. And so helping somebody see what's going on and then actually helping them change the behavior. So when it comes to health, that's a whole nother expertise that is like, okay, I need to be an expert in this also, and then help people do something that maybe there's reasons as deeply seated as money issues are and as lost aversion are and prospect theory and Kahneman and Tversky and all that behavioral finance stuff is. Food and rituals around eating and eating habits and exercising and rest are also very basic, very biological, very evolutionary-based, habitual, hardwired. So it's very difficult also. You know, you got your hands full already, just focusing on money. And I think that's why. And I also go back to, again, this is every person's individual journey. This is every person's individual decision-making that they're going to have to go back to. I think there are things that retirement planners can do to help, but I don't think it's just an easy thing. I don't think it's an out-of-the-box thing. And I'll agree with you on that. I don't think it's an easy thing, but I think that if questions are asked right, especially from your retirement planner, because you know how we feel emotionally, psychologically about money and what it does to us. And so when you have these good conversations with your clients about what they value, because that's the thing, what's valuable to them? Okay, yeah, I need money, but what's valuable to you? And so nine times out of 10, when I'm talking to someone, people talk about the value of their family that it has in their life and how valuable this is and how I want to get this retirement money to my kids. And I want to be able to live and not, you know, outliving my money as a fear, getting my money to my kids is a dream. And how I get it to them is what they're coming to see me about. And so what I am able to do is take their value that they have, which is whether it's family, and we'll just say it's family for this instance and say, 
okay, how important is it for you to spend time with your family? You know, I love spending time with my family. I said, well, you know, by the health choices that you were making or the food choices that you were making, you were going to shorten the time that you have with your family. And they're like, I never really thought of it that way. And it's like very simple, but it's finding out what's important to them first and then making sure that the activities and things that they're doing are going to lead to them increasing the value that they have or taking care of the things that they value, which in this case, most times it's going to be family. I think once I've done that with people, when I've been able to kind of find out what the real underlying thing is, and I ask questions about what's your first memory of money, I go through that when I'm asking them that. I allow my clients to die in our meetings frequently. So if today you got 24 hours to live, you just found out today, what regrets do you have? That's one of the most powerful questions that you can ever ask someone because then it starts to think about all the things that they regret. And now if I can get them to talk about things they regret while they're still alive, we can go back and fix those things that they regret and make sure that they have more value and they spend more time with the things that they feel that way about. So that's kind of what I've taken people through when I'm talking to them about retirement. The numbers are the numbers. We can figure out how much money you need to put away. I can figure out how much money you need to put in your 401k. I can figure out how the drawdown is going to work, what percentage we need to receive on the rates of return. That's easy. Getting them to understand what they value is really hard. That was so well put. I love it. And I just want to point out that you are applying Socratic method. You're a cognitive behavioralist. You don't even know it. I mean, what you're doing is you're walking them through the thinking in a rational way. Socratic methodology. You know, I mean, that is like serious stuff. And I'll tell you a couple other things. And this is something that I knew about you the first time that we ever talked and that I loved and we were bonding on health. So you have the rational component, which you just described, the cognitive component, Socratic method. It's the best argument at the highest level. Also, you model the behavior. People look up to other people, right? They come and see you. They trust you. They look up to you. And you modeling, you taking care of yourself, you being in good shape is a model, which is the greatest type of education, the greatest type of parenting, the greatest type of coaching. It's Vince Lombardi 101. You're doing the exact same thing because they're coming in, they're seeing a guy who's healthy and that, so you have the bona fides to be able to talk. So you're hitting a couple of things here. You're hitting the cognitive behavioral, you're hitting the modeling, right? And you might not even realize this, but you're doing visualization with them as well. It's a very vivid thing. And the visualization hits an emotional level. Hey, you got 24 hours to live, imagine for a minute. So they close their eyes, or even if they keep their eyes open and they begin to use that creative part, which is linked directly to that emotional part. And the emotional part is where change happens. You're already doing it. And so I love it. So you asked me the question, you didn't even have to ask because you're already doing it. You're probably just doing it instinctually. I'll tell you one thing about getting a degree in psychology. It's great. Learned a lot of things. Learned a lot of stuff about cognitive behaviorism and loss aversion when it comes to behavioral economics. But one thing that I also learned was that humans are all born already, they're social beings. So really, when you get a psychology degree, it's really, you just learn a little bit more than this, but 80% of it is just learning the fancy terms. Really, either you have it inside you or you don't. You're an inspirational person or you're not. You're modeling behavior or you're not. 
You understand intuitively the value of stories and narratives, or you don't. And so you're already operating on that level, which I applaud. Some people can learn it. Some people do it naturally. Some people will never learn. Well, I appreciate that. I think it's just through working with people. I think, like you said, we are all social beings. And I think I brought this up in another episode. Every culture that we've seen has always had some type of person that they go to for advice, whether it was the shaman, whether it was the medicine man or whatever you want to call it in the tribe. When people were together, they had someone that they would go to or the elders that they would go to for advice. So what you're hearing me do is not something that I made up on my own. It's something that I've been able to reach back and talk to people. And really, it was modeled behavior from my grandmother. Honestly, if we really get down to it, my grandmother cared about people. She passed away a few years back, but I carry on the traditions that she taught me. And the most important thing that she talked about was people. She was the one that if she's making a cake, she'd make one for you too. If she's making some food, she'd take a plate to you. Whatever she was doing, people were the center of what she did. I try to bring that into the whole thing with retirement or with anything that I'm doing. And this is why we have the health component and the relationship component and the things that I like to do in my firm because of that relationship building and caring part of my grandmother that showed me that's how you work with people. And so I think it was only natural for me to have, I mean, I have a picture of my grandmother in my office and I need to get a sign made. I've been saying I'm going to get one made, but I have a picture of it. When I'm sitting at my computer in my office, at my actual office, I'm working from home now, but when I'm in the office, I have a picture of her and on the picture, I want to get some words put on it, but it's her looking at me and it says, work like Bernice is watching. And that's how I get stuff done. That's my guidepost. That's where I'm working like she's watching me all the time. And that's giving people the best of me because I have a standard that I live up to that she created that will never be shaken. And I think that's what you're hearing in what I'm saying. It was a behavior that was modeled to me. Yeah. And you know, with that modeling of behavior of primary people in our lives, it becomes internalized. It becomes a part of your psyche, a part of your schema of the way that you think about the world, the way that you relate to the world, the way that you relate to others. And that is unshakable. It's a part of who you, it's your personality, a part of your personality. That is unshakable over time. That is going to be a part of you from today. And then guess what? You're going to instill that in others who will also internalize and pass that on too. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. Just helping as many people as you can. One of the things I've seen that you talked about, something that you were working on was the cognitive noise theory. Can you talk about that a little bit? I was curious because I didn't see much on it, but I don't even know if it has anything to do with retirement, which doesn't matter because <laughs> I just want to hear about it because it seemed like something I want to hear about. Right. So the cognitive theory of noise, it actually goes back to what we were talking about. There is descriptive, right? So behavioral finance is a descriptive model. It talks about the way the world is. As a matter of fact, you could go back to traditional economics and the efficient markets hypothesis. I'm not going to get too wonky. I'm going to come out of the wonk, I promise. But you go back to efficient markets hypothesis, and it's a normative theory. It talks about the way the world should be. Everybody was a rational actor. This is the way the markets would behave. This is the way people would behave in their own best interest, expected utility theory, blah, blah, blah. We know that's not real. And so Kahneman Tversky came along and proved in a research setting that people are loss averse to their own detriment. They don't behave rational. They are not homo economists. They are irrational actors, and that is a descriptive model. 
So we got the normative model, the way people should behave. We got the descriptive model, the way that people really do behave. And then we have this brick wall, okay? And the brick wall goes like this. Here's how you should behave. You can't tell somebody that. If I'm loss averse to an irrational degree and somebody comes up to me and says, hey, don't be loss averse. Don't hold on to your losers. Sell your losers down and hold your winners. I'm not going to listen because it's more going on there than just that rational part. There's something deep and biological and evolutionary. It would be akin to going up to somebody who was severely depressed or had obsessive compulsive disorder and saying to them, hey, stop washing your hands, dummy. That's just completely ineffective. Prescriptive model has to be a little bit more sophisticated and a little bit more sensitive to the way that people change. We were talking about it before. We were talking about people change their behavior based on modeling. You know, somebody they look up to, they glom onto narratives that they believe in and embrace those stories, right? We were talking about that too. That was a 24 hours to live thing. Visualization, right? And yes, Socratic method has a place there too. That's part of it. Appealing to people's higher level thinking, 100%. It's a combination of all those things. The cognitive theory of noise is basically saying, hey, we have this great descriptive model of the way we behave around markets, around gains and losses, around all these different things related to money. It's called behavioral economics. It's a young science. It's maybe a 40-year-old science, 45-year-old science. If you go back to 74, when the first article on heuristics and biases was published by Kahneman Tversky. So young science. And now what we need is a prescriptive model. We need a way to actually enact change. So how do we do that? Well, you need a good model that has components that are theoretical and that are also applicable. So we need a way of thinking about it that makes a lot of sense. And we also need interventions with things that we can do. Some things that you're already doing. Like before I said, it's a cognitive behavioral model, by the way. That's why I call it a cognitive theory of noise. And I'm sort of ribbing behavioral economics a little bit because behavioral economics or behavioral finance is a great name but really it's cognitive, behavioral, emotional finance, right? Because all of those things are the constellation. So I'm taking the cognitive element, which is really handed down from clinical psychology and Aaron Beck had a model called cognitive therapy. And I'm taking some of the principles from there and I'm saying, hey, we can model these irrational behaviors in a very similar way that clinical psychologists do. And then we could take some of those same clinical interventions and apply those. So if you have people that are behaving in irrational ways around money, we could say, hey, let's follow this plan. Well, how are they behaving irrationally? What are their thoughts, right? That's the cognitive component. Oh, if I lose money, I'm awful. That's an automatic thought that would be sort of the type of thing. You probably heard it before, people being ashamed. What's the emotional component to that? They're ashamed that they lost money on investment. I'm sure you've run into that, right? Somebody comes in, and you're talking about, hey, what are you doing with this investment? I sold it at the bottom. Now I'm embarrassed about it. All those kinds of things. You've interacted with that irrational behavior a million times, I'm sure. What do you do about that? So this is a model. Cognitive theory of noise is really a model to address that on a process level, on a change process level. How do you get people to change? Beauty of you is you're already doing some of those things just by instinct, just by the fact that you're an astute, tuned in, social being, experienced. But there is really a deep model there. And it goes for not just long-term planning, 
but it goes for trading as well. People who are traders have a lot of, and this is where I've done some consulting utilizing this model and I work with people all the time, but hey, I'm going through this thing where I'm having difficulty, I'm on tilt, behaving, I'm taking greater risk when I'm losing money, which is the definition of tilt, right? And that's behavioral economics 101. That's prospect theory. Or I'm having difficulty doubling down on my winners or whatever the case may be. It's modeling that and applying a set of principles to that. Nice. Did you use this? You said something about a hedge fund, right? When you're working with a hedge fund company, did the cognitive theory of noise come into play there? The cognitive theory of noise was, I was developing that at the time. So I had not fully realized it. And as a matter of fact, I was writing an outline for it. And so I have all of this written out and I publish bits and pieces of it from time to time. And it may become a book at some point and I use it in my own investing and I use it in working with investors who I consult with from time to time. But I really was formulating at that time. And we were employing behavioral models to invest. Because it seems like at that time, in that environment, a hedge fund, this theory would be incredible. And I'm guessing this is where you probably, like you said, this is when you started developing. I'm guessing it would work very, very well in that setting, if I'm not mistaken. This I began to develop with a case study with an N of one within that environment. And I did it around practicing taking losses fast. Oh, okay. So I took a clinical psychological intervention that is basically called exposure that is used with phobics. So people have uh, panic disorder, agoraphobia, fear of anything. And the evidence-based treatments are exposure treatments. So if you're scared of bridges, we would expose you to a bridge, right? The first thing that we do is we talk about bridges and your heart would begin to race and you would begin showing some symptoms. And we would talk about that bridge and do deep breathing until you calm down or whatever else that we did. And then I'd show you a picture of a bridge and you'd start to get panicky again. And we'd work with you to calm yourself down with just looking at a bridge. Where I live, we go over to uh, Quarter Mile Lookout, go to Terrytown, or we'd go to Nyack, and we'd look at the bridge over there over the Hudson, and you'd do the same thing. It would be called graded exposure. The last treatment would be we would drive or walk over the bridge, and that is exposure. So what I did the first time I treated myself and really the aha moment with me of understanding, hey, this is a model where I am taking my education from clinical psychology and applying it to behavioral economics as a prescriptive model was, hey, let me learn to take losses very fast. So I started with a very, very small trade, one that really wouldn't affect me viscerally. I wouldn't have a visceral response to me. And if I was losing, I would just take it off. I did that many times. And the funny thing is, is I wound up making money doing that because I took the losses so quick but it was a very small amount of money. So then I kicked up the amount of money I did it with a little bit, kicked it up again to the point where I really trained myself to take losses very, very quick, even if I was playing with larger amounts of money. And then what I did was I built the theoretical model around that. I was going to say, yeah, to model that. Okay. With us talking about the cognitive theory, behavioral, emotional, economics, like you got all this stuff going on, which, and I'm picking up what you're putting down. But how can people find simplicity 
in investment planning. Amen. Yes, you're right. Here's the thing. And we just got into it. I'm guilty of it during this conversation myself. There's something that I sort of call intellectual FOMO, right? So it's a fear of missing out on this intellectualism. And we are super hyper intellectualized society. There are books everywhere. There are people pontificating on everything. Social media is a thousand opinions. People trying to prove how smart they are. Did you read the latest book? It's almost as bad as who has the cool car in their driveway. Did you read that book? Are you keeping up with the Joneses? But for intellectualism. And meanwhile, what we really need to get back to is right here, is right here. And so the irony is that you can really simplify all of this. You can simplify all of this and you can really boil everything down into two or three or four things and then focus on those small number of things. For me, I'm a triadic guy. The cognitive model is a triadic model. I'm a triadic guy. I'm a three things guy. I'm a triangle guy. And I said to myself, okay, what are the three important things to me? You know, I did this maybe five or six years ago. What are the three important things to me? Number one is my health. Number two is my family. Number three is my business. In that order. Maybe different times in my life, there's going to be three different things and they're going to be in a different order. Maybe for some younger people out there that don't have families yet, health and business might be one and two. It could be businesses first and health. It's not up to me to say, what are your top three priorities? But you just pick three. And my grandfather, who I was named after, and I never met him, and he immigrated to this country, escaped from the Russian army, he was a Jew in the Russian army, which was not a good thing to be back in those days. He said to my father, you can have anything in this world that you want, but you can't have everything. And so that's not true for everybody. There's a few people out there that have everything that they want. But for most people, you have to make some choices. So three things for me, health, family, finances, and business in that order. And so for me, I just boiled it all down. And I said, okay, I'm going to take care of myself and I'm going to simplify that. I'm just going to eat whole foods, not going to eat things out of a box as much as possible. That's it. That's basically it. I'm going to move my body every day. Very simple. Number two, I'm going to be with my family. You know, that's it. I'm going to cook and eat with them and I'm going to be there. And then number three is I'm going to work hard. And that was really it. So that is taking all of that stuff, all of that theoretical, 10,000 books, the Tao Te Ching, the New Testament, the Old Testament, whatever your books are, boil them down to the super simple. And that is where I'm sort of at now. So I started this newsletter called primecutsubstack.com. And basically every week, I'm really just writing for myself. And it's just really these simple, simple things that I'm observing about the world. And they're not finger wags. They're not pointing anything out. I keep most of them under 100 words because if it's any longer, you get into that intellectual FOMO. For me, that's just the simplicity of well-being. Nice. I like it. When you're boiling those down, that's the simplicity of life. And if someone's trying to do investments, they would boil it down to the same type thing, I'm guessing. When I've seen the stuff that I've seen, far as people that have accumulated wealth, slow and steady wins the race. 
I hear all these people trying to get out there, buy stocks and get winners and this and that. But it's your average person that's not going to sit there and have, because I know we have to, you have to get like 82% of the guesses right to actually make money if you're going to be doing stock trades on a daily basis. And if I was to say the simplicity in investment planning is going to be the dollar cost averaging method, that is the easiest way to figure out how to start investing. And you pick a mutual fund, sometimes with the help of an advisor, sometimes you do it on your own and just put the money in every month. And that is going to be the simplest way that you can start to accumulate wealth, in my opinion. Now, I know there's some people that like to do other things and there's nothing wrong with those things. I tell people, what do you have, your pay money or your play money? With your play money, you want to buy some stocks and do some different things like that. This is typically what I'm telling my clients. Knock yourself out, have a blast, do what you want to do. And then you can see how risk averse you are. Everybody's looking for that winner, right? Until they lose. And once they lose, then it's like, what do we do now? First, I want to thank you for coming on, Phil. And I have some questions that I always ask all my guests in closing, and I want to make sure that I get your take on these. But these are my changing the complexion of wealth question. And so what I always ask my guests when they come on, what motivates you to continue to grow and learn and lead? What's your motivation? Fantastic question. I am driven by love. And I am driven by my family. And I am driven by being inspired by creative endeavors. I'm inspired by music. And I believe strongly. So I'm going to be 53 on Saturday. And for me, reinvention is primary, an incredible way to remain youthful and spirited and filled with life. And so that's where I'm at. That's where I'm coming from. I feel super blessed to be there. I look around and I see some my age who have, in our culture, who are really focused on the political climate, which is poisonous, and they are not challenging themselves. And that is a very sad thing to me because there's a great wisdom that comes with aging. And so my goal is to keep myself in a place where I can give back. Absolutely. I like that. You've talked about your family quite a few times on this. How has your family supported you on this journey? I am just so blessed. I married a great woman. She is a clinical psychologist. She worked with the families of those who perished in 9-11 and became a director of a program at NYU in the shadow of 9-11 and did amazing work and has built a practice where she helps people. She's an inspiration to me. She's taught me so much about living. She's my partner. Our kids are our greatest journey together and we're invested in them. And so I'm a family guy. You were talking about your grandmother before, but that's something that we both learned from our own families growing up. And that was modeled for us. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's always good to hear family being the center of what people do. If you could offer a piece of advice to our listeners, almost like a parting gift, what would you tell them as we're closing up the show? What would you say to them, Phil? What kind of advice do you have? I would say, give yourself a break. Because, you know, there's a million things. Advice is so cheap. And there are a million things I could say. 
But one thing that doesn't get said very often, everybody is striving. Everybody has problems. Everybody is struggling at a moment in their life. Nobody is on easy street. You're born with a trust fund. You're born beautiful and with good looks forever. It doesn't matter. You're born the smartest person in the world. It doesn't matter. Life is difficult and you mess up and you get caught and you get in a quagmire. And I have found that people who have that capacity to just laugh at themselves, give themselves a break, are the people who bounce back. It's a really a quality of being able to bounce back, just giving yourself a break. I like that. Give yourself a break. If people want to hear more of you, Phil, or they just want to hear you know, some of the ideas, I know you said you have the Prime Cuts newsletter. What social medias are you active on and where can people find some more of the ideas that you're sharing? You could find me on Twitter at P. Perlman. If you at me with a comment or a question, I will reply. You could find me on primecuts.substack.com. If you're interested in markets, you could find me on StockTwits. We are the largest and greatest market-focused community that has ever existed. And there are a lot of smart people there sharing ideas, celebrating wins, commiserating losses. And that's a great spot too. My blog is 8fatswine.com. You could find me there too. I've been on Prime Cuts more recently, more often, but I post occasionally at 8fatswine as well. Okay, awesome. Phil, I want to thank you again. It was an honor to have you on the show and just kind of pick your brain and then, you know, make sure I didn't get any intellectual FOMO because I feel like we covered some intellectual topics that the guests will really enjoy. Thank you again. This is Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host of the Minority Money Podcast, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast, so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here, and until next time, 